Section One of the Drama: A Quarterly Review. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. Arthur Schnitzler, from the Drama: A Quarterly Review, August 1912, Section One. When an American author regularly produces one novel or play a year, and in some years too, we do not think of inquiring to what profession he belongs. One learns, therefore, with a start of surprise, that Arthur Schnitzler, from whose pen no less than twenty-three volumes have appeared in print since eighteen ninety-two, who has reclaimed the one-act play as a serious literary form. Who is called Austria's leading dramatist after Schönherr, and to whom was awarded the Grillpotzer Prize in 1908, is a practicing physician. One feels an irresistible desire to ask him, "When do you write your books?" or "When do you see your patients?" Born in Vienna in 1862, the son of a professor in the medical faculty, he took his M.D. At the University of Vienna in 1885, was thereafter employed as assistant physician at the General Hospital until 1888, and has since then been connected with the clinical hospital in addition to his activities as practitioner. The physician often sees life in its sombrest aspect, for he learns to know men largely through their diseases. He encounters more frequently than upon the soldier shoots him down in cold blood. A conflict of a different sort appears in Der Ensam Weg, the lonely board. Here Schnitzler appears to have taken a leaf out of Anzengruber's book, for he treats a problem exactly parallel to that of the latter's novel, Der Schanderfleck, the blot of shame. In both, a man brings up as his own the child of his wife by another man. Only Anzengruber's hero knows it. In both cases, the real father reveals the truth to the child, seeking comfort for a lonely old age. Only Anzengruber's heroine has already learned the truth from her foster father. In both, the child turns to the only father it has ever known, leaving the real father to go his lonely road. At this point, may also be mentioned a series of four one-act plays, which illustrate in different ways a more spiritual conflict. That between the practical and the artistic view of life, it is shown most clearly in the first play of the series, entitled "Lehendig Stunden," Living Hours. This is a dialogue between an affectionate son and a devoted friend of his mother. Her death has crushed the older man, but has freed the young poet for new creative work. In wild jealousy and resentment, the former reveals the mother's secret. Namely, that she ended her own life of incurable suffering in order that her son might be set free by it. Overwhelmed at first, he later rises to new creative power, accepting the mother's sacrifice. In the second piece of the group, the conflict is not brought out so clearly. Die Frau mit dem Dolch, the woman with the dagger, is the title of a picture. In which a painter's wife recognizes a previous incarnation of herself, irresistibly she is led to repeat the same course as that taken by the pictured woman. 
This leads first to the betrayal of her husband, and finally to her lover's death by her own hand. Her deed inspires her husband to a new work of the highest art. High above the rest of the series and rated as only inferior to Der Grand Cactu is De Letzen Masken, the final mask. The two viewpoints are here represented by two quantum friends, both poets, one of whom is famous and rich, the other poor and sick and waiting for death in a hospital. The poor but great soul journalist calls his really shallow colleague to his deathbed in order to pour out the vials of his wrath upon him. But when the petty great man comes, he feels the uselessness of attempting to open his eyes and turns over to die contentedly in the consciousness of his own greater worth. Literature, the last of the series, is a farce, but a brilliant one. A priori, one would not expect Schnitzler to achieve success in the historical drama, yet he has twice tried his hand at it. In Der Jung Medardis, he takes us back to the Napoleonic Wars. Medardis sets out to assassinate the emperor, but instead turns his dagger upon the woman who urges him on to the deed, because she has been accused of being Napoleon's mistress. The author's dialogue is his undoing in this work. He is so concerned to produce atmosphere and setting that the dramatic action vanishes from view. His most ambitious drama so far, though not his most successful, is the other historical play, Der Schleier de Beatrice, Beatrice's Veil. In it, he attempts a canvas of more than Shakespearean proportions. No less than fifty-three speaking parts are listed, besides all the mute figures which fill the background at various times. The scene is laid in Bologna of the sixteenth century. In the central figure, next to the Beatrice of the title, is the reigning duke, Leonardo Bentivoglio. And this, again, reminds of Shakespeare. If we add the great length of the drama, five acts, covering two hundred and fifteen pages, and the alternation of blank verse and prose, with an occasional happy turn of speech, we have all the elements that justify a comparison with Shakespearean art. Certainly, any deeper similarity is lacking. The great canvas merely confuses. The verse, while smooth and even elegant at times, shows no sign of greatness, and the length deadens the effect and breaks up the unity of the conception. Worse than all, the magnificent reality and life of Shakespeare's characters is wholly lacking. The personages of this play are not convincing. They are not alive. The action centers around Beatrice, the wonderfully beautiful sixteen-year-old daughter of a petty merchant. She is loved by Filippo Loschi, a brave nobleman and celebrated poet. For her sake, he forsakes his betrothed, Teresina, sister of Count Andrea Santusi, and for her he is ready to forsake honor and his native city as well. But Beatrice has daydreamed that she was the consort of the handsome and valiant duke, and therefore Filippo thrusts her from him. She goes and is ready to yield to the wish of her brother that she marry a young man of her own station. On the way to the church, they are met by the duke, who loves her and confesses his love. 
She does not say no, but demands that he make her his wife. He at once makes preparations for the ceremony and opens up his own gardens for a bacchanalian festival. The city has been invested by the enemy. Death may come to all on the morrow. It behooves them to make the most of the fleeting moments ere they pass. Beatrice steals away from the tumult of the festival to go to Filippo, whom she really loves. He proposes to her that they drink death together after their night of love. She professes willingness, but when he puts her to the test by pretending that she has already drunk poison with him, her dread of death reveals itself, and Filippo drinks the real poison alone. Overcome with horror, she hastens back to the duke, forgetting, however, her veil. She endeavors to cover up what she has done with lies, but is in the end induced by fear of death to lead the duke to Filippo's house. He understands and forgives, saying, Wast thou not Beatrice a simple child that played with crown and throne because they glittered, and with a poet's soul because mysterious, and with a stripling's heart because, forsooth, twas given thief, but we are too severe and suffer not. And each of us demanded not only that he be the only plaything, more the world and all to thee. and thee we chide, a traitorous, wicked, and thou wast a child. These words would seem to hold the key to the involved happenings of the play, but they do not explain away the unreality of the actors. The fundamental idea of the drama, on the other hand, seems to be the sardonically emphasized juxtaposition of love and death. Since death threatens on the morrow, let us enjoy our love. This feature, In varying expressions, recurs again and again. One of its manifestations is Beatrice's own horror of death, which she herself admits at the last, and in so doing attempts to justify her strange conduct. The Duke has said to her mother, Thou hast thy daughter now, and she is free, and Beatrice, do thou lay fear aside. She replies, kneeling by Filippo's corpse. All that is past, and yet twas that alone that urged me on through all these devious paths from lie to lie, from shame to shame. And all because I shuddered at the thought of lying in death as thou now liest. And why must I, just I, be singled out to bring something sorrow to so many, knowing I meant to wrong no one? I now come to that type of subject which is evidently Schnitzler's favorite, and in which he has scored his greatest successes and his greatest failures. Whether he merely follows one marked trend of the naturalistic school, or a strong individual bent, it is certain that his work is characterized by a steady, almost morbid insistence upon man's sexual life. It crops out again and again, and amounts at times to a veritable obsession. No one will deny that the sexual impulse is one of the most powerful natural forces in the world, but to make sexual intercourse the equivalent of life itself, as Schnitzler does in Der Ruf des Lehens, The Call of Life, can only be called an outrageous distortion of normal humanity. The central figures of this drama are two young girls of humble station. 
one foreseeing early death by consumption flings herself open-eyed into the gutter the other rushes over her father's murdered body past the fresh corpse of a faithless wife into the arms of the latter's paramour and both we are given to understand are following simply the call of life something of this unnatural emphasis on the sexual life is to be found in anatole his first publication this strange book consists of a series of seven one-act pieces each of which centers about an affair between the young man of this name and a different woman now it is a girl from the ballet now a bareback rider from the circus now a weak married woman once he is about to marry a self-confessed harlot but leaves her after all in the final piece he is seen on his wedding morning and his friend max is compelled to assist him in getting rid of the imperious beauty who has spent the night with him noteworthy is de frage andas schicksal questioning fate in which anatole hypnotizes the girl in order to ask her if she has been true to him and fails to put the question in the end noteworthy also is the little dialogue weinachsenkopf christmas presents which reminds one of hope's dolly dialogues although it is far less clever here anatole encounters a married woman whom he has loved before she married and who it appears was not wholly indifferent to him she sends flowers by him to his present in marotta essentially sexual problems are also involved in zwischenspiel intermezzo the plot consists of the separation reunion and second separation of a married couple the wife being the prime mover in each case and the motive force a thirst for adventures i e love affairs the characters are not alive and the work has passed almost unnoticed just the contrary is true of his begin which attracted so much attention that his publication was forbidden this is again a series of swift dialogues in which the slender thread of connection leads us back to the point from which we started in this field lies schnitzler's highest dramatic achievements thus far it is his liebe light o love of which das vermachenes the legacy is a rather feeble echo the legacy is the posthumous illegitimate child of a young aristocratic rake when the child dies the mother is cast out of his family in light o love the action is more firmly knit and the result is a superb achievement of its kind the story of the play is as follows fritz loheimer a young and wealthy student has been drawn into an intrigue with a beautiful young married woman the liaison puts a heavy drain on his nerves for she fears that they are watched and her fears are communicated to him his friend and fellow student theodor kaiser worried by his run-down condition attempts to cure him of the one passion by leading him into one of a different kind on one occasion theodore induces tony schlager a young milliner's assistant for whom he has a momentary infatuation to bring her prettiest acquaintance to the meeting while he himself brings fritz 
although fritz is not sufficiently touched to break off the first affair he does feel the charm of the young girl and his meetings with her help to soothe his ragged nerves theodore invites the two girls to his friend's apartments hoping in this way to help him over one of his bad hours while they are in the midst of their merriment the bell rings and fritz finds his worst fears realized the intrigue is discovered and he sees clearly that he must fall in the ensuing duel from this point the interest centers in christine the light o love the daughter of a poor man she has lived quietly in her modest little home working for her father and knowing few pleasures if also few sorrows to her who has never come in contact with men fritz is like a being from another world and the whole power of her fresh womanhood is thrown into the love she gives him he is for her as she puts it her god and her bliss of heaven and while she harbors no illusions as to the permanence of fritz's love for her she has never been able to contemplate losing him the second act is devoted chiefly to a careful development of her character and her attitude toward fritz and on the other hand an added touch of pathos results from the fact that for the first time fritz begins to realize dimly it is true that she is and what she might be to him this nature is kindled by the pure fire of her spirit and when he bids her farewell leaving her as he knows for ever it is with the pang of one who may look into the open gate of heaven but may not enter in the third act two days after the duel centers about christine's discovery of the whole truth about fritz pain at his heart is swallowed up in the greater grief caused by the manner of it she is beside herself at the thought that he never loved her that she was merely a pastime to him that he could leave her with a smile to go and be shot down for another woman but when she learns that he has already been buried and that she cannot even see his face once more her anguish passes all bounds and she rushes forth to seek his grave and die upon it the synopsis shows the firm clear-cut lines of the play its steady and well-planned development its fine climax but it has the further merit which cannot be allowed all of schnitzler's dramas that the characters are really alive and convincing not merely the main figures live but also christine's old father her prying but kindly neighbor catherine yes and even the wronged husband who appears but once and is ominously styled simply the gentleman and the character drawing is executed with the lightest possible touch built up line by line out of seemingly flimsy dialogue but with masterly precision one of schnitzler's earliest works Liebli, remains his high-water mark in the drama and in view of the distinct limitations of his art it may be doubted whether he will ever rise above it or even reach it again certainly nothing he has done since has justified the hope it raised that in arthur schnitzler might be found a new and powerful prophet of the naturalistic school End of section one.